0: Good morning. Welcome again. Thanks for being here with us this morning. Today we continue a series in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is the fourth gospel found in your New Testament in your Bible. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, they share a lot of the same stories. They play out in very similar ways. The fourth gospel, the Gospel of John, uh, plays out in really unique ways. About seventy percent of John's material is unique to his telling of Jesus' life. He tells from a, his, his story about Jesus from a very particular place. In fact towards the end of his uh, his gospel account here his story is good news about Jesus he says I write this so that you might believe in Jesus and have eternal life in him. He's very clear, this is not an unbiased account. He is writing that we might come to believe in Jesus. So here in the series, we are exploring the words of John, uh, one of the apostles, a man who walked with Jesus throughout Jesus' ministry, a man who witnessed the healings and the crucifixion and the resurrection and all that happened in Jesus' life, and he writes this account that we might believe. Now in the first chapter, we're Going to be in chapter two today in John's gospel. In the first chapter, um, he establishes a number of things. First, he begins with this beautiful poetic language as he describes um, the Genesis one account of creation and Jesus as the Word of God, who was God and was with God from the very beginning. Jesus was a part of this. Who was then in, born into this world L- later in the in chapter one here in John. He describes uh, seven different names of Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is uh, Uh, the Son of Man, and all of these different things. And he describes for us who Jesus is in the first chapter. And then he moves on in chapter 2 and a number of chapters following to begin to describe for us um, why we might believe that Jesus is who he's claimed him to be that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. So, the next number of chapters is going to lay out seven signs, seven kind of miracles, things that Jesus did that prove his character. I'm going to read the full text today, and then we'll dive in a little bit deeper. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each held uh, from twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water, what had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, "Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now." What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum where his mother and brothers and his uh, with his mother brother and disciples There they stayed for a few days. So... As I said, John begins his gospel account by telling uh, who Jesus is. He is God. He was with God. He's an agent in creation, and he is the eternal God born into human flesh. He is the Son of Man, and he is the Messiah, all of these things. And now he's going to begin to build his case. He's going to begin to build this case saying, uh, Jesus is who I have described him to be because of these signs that he performed. And the very first one is what? providing wine for a bunch of people that have already had too much to drink. This does not make any sense, John. I mean, of all of the things he could tell about Jesus as his first miraculous, you know, here he is, his ministry has begun, this is the last thing we would imagine John to be telling in the very beginning. Now, uh, John is a little bit unique, as I said, he, he writes a little bit differently than the other gospel authors. One of the things that he does differently is the language that he uses. He he describes these as signs. Now, in the other uh, gospel accounts, they're often described as signs and wonders, often we will translate the the Greek term there to uh, miracles, the miracles that Jesus performed, and they're just gross displays of power that demonstrate Jesus couldn't be anything but God because of these incredible things happening. But John writes his gospel a little differently. He said, these are signs, that is these are pointing to something far greater than just the act and just the thing that happened here. So it's our job today to dig into this text a little bit more and understand a little bit more clearly what is John pointing to in choosing this story as the first one about who Jesus is. Now, uh, I want to make a little bit of a disclaimer here. We're talking about wine, we're talking about alcohol here, and uh, these words were not written in a prose, post-prohibition era in the United States, understand the context and the conversation would have been understood and received much differently in the first century. Wine was common in the ancient world. About 200 B.C., um, uh, Rome, uh, the, the, the dominant power uh, in the world, um, was planting vast vineyards. Now, 200 years later, as Jesus is on earth, uh, Roman wine culture is strong. Now, understand wine was used for many different things in the first century. Um, uh, the Greek world had uh, just as robust a wine culture. It was used for medicinal purposes. Additionally, wine was typically recommended uh, to be watered down. Uh, that is, uh, in the Roman world, I think it was usually about one part wine to three parts water. In the Greek world, some of their philosophers and leaders uh, said one part to four parts was the proper amount. Um, and they speak of the barbarians that would drink wine neat, you know, just drink the wine by itself. Now, there's actually been some interesting studies recently to find that both the pH and the alcohol in wine could actually um, cleanse the water. in in some respects. So maybe there was good wisdom in that. Wine was drank on uh, really in any time of the day. It was not necessarily used for intoxication, but instead it was a common part of daily life in these cultures, along with Israel as well. As Jesus turns water into wine at this feast, understand he's at an Israelite gathering, and wine is a part of the culture of their nation as well, and always has been. Wine represented um, a harvest that God has provided for us. It was used in their celebration and those sorts of things. The Bible does caution against uh, drunkenness, and the Bible does caution about excessive use of wine. And I know that here in our culture today, and here in just this little auditorium, There are those of us that are struggling with or have struggled with alcohol in the past. And I do want to just say this as a cautionary note as we begin, as we engage this text today. Um, I hope that nothing in scripture or in my words would entice any of us to do something that we know to be harmful, right? I I don't want to allow this conversation to enable us to do things that we know not to be healthy in our lives, but I don't think there's any way to avoid that. The first sign that John describes here is at a wedding, they've been drinking wine, and Jesus makes more of it, and the party will go on because of it. Now, this is important. Let's start to understand why that might be the case, why Jesus might be doing that. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 in John's gospel are going to speak of the old and the new. So uh, you'll remember in the text, as Jesus, uh, his his mom has voluntold him uh, to take care of the problem at the wedding. Here, um, Jesus uh, sees some some uh, big vessels uh, that are used for purification, and that's significant. They were water vessels used to purify it. Could be the hands or the dishes or or other little rituals. The purification vessels would be filled with water and then become wine. John is beginning to speak of old and new. Once purification happened like that, it becomes blood, which soon we'll talk about, uh, represents, or it becomes wine, which represents Jesus' blood and communion, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The next text is going to be about the temple. And John's going to again describe this old and new. Once the temple operated in this way, Jesus is going to say, I'm the temple, and I will raise again uh, in three days. Um, he'll speak with a Samaritan woman about Jacob's well, one of the fathers of Israel, right, dug this well. And Jesus will say, but no, that's the old stuff. The new stuff is in me, and it's living water. He'll go on to talk about worship with this woman who says, well, do we have to worship here or there? And Jesus will say, no, the new way of worship will be in me, and it will be in spirit And in truth, so John's first sign speaks to the old and new. Once purification looked like those empty vessels that you have already used in the ceremony, eventually, it will look very different in Jesus. Okay, so the text began at a wedding, and I I love this. Um, Jesus is hanging out at a wedding, right? Uh, Apparently, from his response to his mother, he had no intention of doing anything miraculous or amazing. Jesus is just at a wedding with all the people and his disciples, and it turns out his mother is there as well. I love weddings, but they never go perfectly. And I know this. I've been involved in a lot of them, right? Uh, not only my own wedding to Sarah, wedding to Sarah, but I've performed many weddings as well, and they never go perfectly. What, what went wrong at your wedding? I mean, there's something quirky that took place at every wedding we've been a part of. Um, I'm not going to go into a story about ours yet, but we're all thinking of those things that we've seen happen at weddings. It never goes quite perfectly. I remember weddings uh, in which um, the, uh, the pastor, you know, asks the wife to be the husband of the other, you know, all those quirky little things that happen in a wedding, and it's not good, but it's funny, and hopefully you laugh it off and move on. Uh, I do have a little beef to pick with weddings. I think I have just a minute to do this. Um, Who's the star of a wedding? Yeah, everyone says the bride, and you're all wrong. Okay, now it's not the groom. Never propose that the groom is the star of a wedding, but here's who I think it is. Who walks in first at a wedding? Yeah, the, the preacher, the pastor, right? He comes and he stands up front, and then he conducts this ceremony, standing over the bride and the groom, and then the uh, pastor, he or she, uh, he'll, he'll speak these words, and they'll just repeat after him, just echo what he's saying, he or she is saying, and then in the end, the pastor will say, and by the power vested in me, who's the star of a wedding? Come on. Right? No? I, is it, my wife is nodding. Yeah. Yeah. I am being absolutely facetious. But I do want to point out the groom is not ever the star of the wedding. And in this wedding, we saw uh, he absolutely was not the star. You see, because in first century culture, uh, he plays an incredibly important role in this wedding. A wedding. The wedding feasts and the event would often last for up to a week, right? Uh, for a week, they would be eating and drinking and celebrating. And it is the responsibility of the groom to provide for that festival, for that feast, for, for everyone to join and to celebrate for as long as it goes on. In fact, I've read about um, kind of the year-long process at times that a groom would be preparing for that day to be able to be a good host. You see, because by, by hosting well, by providing for his guests in abundance, he is proving to the bride's family that he is capable of caring for her. And understand, there would be great, great shame in the running out of wine early in a festival like this. He either didn't plan well or he doesn't have the finances or ability to handle this ceremony. He was responsible and shame would fall on him and his household if the wine were to run out. And in fact, the wine did run out. And for some reason, Mary goes to Jesus asking for his help. And I can't even imagine exactly what she expects. I don't know. In my mind, I doubt she expects him to turn water into wine. But for some reason, she goes to Jesus. Clearly, she has uh, learned uh, that, that amazing things happen when you turn to Jesus. Um, I mean, let's be honest. Since the virgin birth, she's known something as, as special is happening, right, here in the life of Jesus. And so, in this moment, for some reason, she, she feels called to to go to Jesus and say, hey, we have a problem. Some people speculate that this is actually a family member. The fact that both Mary and Jesus are at this wedding, and the fact that Mary kind of steps in to say we have a problem and might need to do something about it. Some people speculate this might be a family member, actually, uh, that is the groom or, or potentially the bride in this story. But we don't have any confirmation on that. For whatever reason, she turns to Jesus and asks for his help. Now Jesus says, "Um woman, my time has not come." Well, maybe I'm jumping ahead. Yeah. I'm debating. "Woman, my time has not come." Okay. This sounds quite rude, right? And some would argue, it's just kind of lost in translation. He's not being rude. There is, in fact, a little bit of a rebuke here. And and let me describe what's happening. He says, my hour has not come. John will repeat this phrase in his gospel. He'll repeat a number of times. uh, My hour has not come. And it speaks every time of Jesus' crucifixion, his death. And so here at this wedding, where they're celebrating and they're having fun and things are going well until the wine runs out, Mary comes to him and says, we have a problem. The wine is gone. And Jesus says, it's not time for me to die yet. What in the world is he talking about? What is John pointing to? What is the sign that he's pointing to in this moment? I think it's this. Jesus did, in fact, come to earth to take the shame of that man. Jesus did, in fact, come to earth to take the shame of all of humanity. He would be hung naked on a cross and take the shame of the world upon himself. And the shame being brought upon this man that Mary is apparently worried about, she turns to Jesus and Jesus says, it's not time for me to take his shame yet. And yet, Jesus engages in this moment. And yet, in this small way, in this life of this one man, in this one gathering, Jesus chooses to lean in. He chooses to take what could be shame and bring about a beautiful moment as they realize the good wine is still flowing at this event. You see, John is pointing to one of the roles that Jesus will play in this world. John is, this is a sign, right? That Jesus is, in fact, the one that will turn the shame of a person into a celebration in Jesus' presence. John is pointing us to this reality. So he says, my time hasn't, hasn't come. My hour has not come. It, it's not time, but Mary won't hear it. So instead she just turns to the servants and says, just do what he says. It'll work itself out. <laughs> Something's gonna, gonna happen here. And uh, so she pushes ahead. He turns some 120 to 160 gallons of water into wine and it's brought to the head of the feast. And this, this is probably like the head waiter, the person in charge of hospitality, who's amazed because after all, who would bring out the good wine late in the celebration? Jesus turns water to wine, and I can only imagine the the shock and confusion of the groom as in the wine is brought to him, and he's told, told, you know, usually you bring out the bad wine last, but man, you saved the best wine for now. Can you imagine that moment as a groom realizing the wine had run out, but somehow there's good wine left at the event Jesus provides, and he provides abundantly for this man. The text concludes um, and in verse 11 and 12. Um, Jesus performed this sign at, at Cana Galilee. That's called an inclusio. The text begins with this phrase, Cana of, of Galilee, and ends here. At, John is indicating to us this is kind of a, a cap. This is the text and the story beginning and end here. It's the first sign which he revealed his glory is what John claims. Jesus revealed his glory. In turning ordinary water into a celebration, into wine, into something, not only to take shame of this man, but to invite the people to continue in the celebration at this wedding. It is a sign, shame lifted and celebration invited. Jesus has provided abundantly in this moment. And again, we saw this beginning of the conversation that John's going to bring to our attention of the old and the new. The old ways of purification will be new in Jesus. The old temple will be understood in new ways. Uh, There is new living water and there is new way of worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, I want to highlight just a couple things that are going to be important in our study of the Gospel of John. A number of themes that we're going to track and see continue to come up throughout his Gospel. Um, the first is water. Water. We're going to see water throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, we already have seen it with John the Baptist, who is baptizing people in water, and he says, remember that old and new conversation that John's bringing up? So John baptized for repentance, but it said Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit and with fire like there is something new coming in baptism in Jesus. So water we've already seen a little bit. We see it again here as it becomes wine, this representation of the old water that used to purify in some simple way. Is a, becomes wine, which is a symbol of Jesus' blood and communion and all of this. Uh, there's water, conversation of, of living water coming in Jesus that we'll see later in the Gospel of John, um, and water as it becomes wine, taking the shame of a person and inviting joy and celebration. There's significance also in this wine. It is representative of the cleansing blood of Jesus, and there's no way in this moment at the that anyone would be perceiving and realizing that. These are the things that John came to understand over the years of following and walking with Jesus and chooses to write down in this beautiful, poetic, just incredibly crafted story of Jesus and his life in which we see these glimpses of water and of wine and of all these different things and they play out and they build and they grow as we come to understand more fully who Jesus is. Jesus is the means of cleansing, of replacing shame with celebration. And it's significant that this event happened at a, at a wedding. Because later Jesus will be described, later in scripture, Jesus will be described as the bridegroom, as the groom of the church. And there's this beautiful moment in, in weddings. My favorite moment in weddings where, uh, kind of traditional, and it doesn't always happen this way and it doesn't have to, but often the, the groom has not seen the bride for a few hours before the ceremony while she's getting ready, right? And there's this incredible moment, uh, in the ceremony where, um, where the pastor, or the pastors are up front with the groom and the wedding parties are here and there's flowers all over the floor and there's this kind of lengthy pause as, as, you, as you wait uh, because the bride's about to enter. And the music begins, and she steps around the corner um, to begin to walk down the aisle. And it happens just about exactly the same way every time. I don't know if you've ever taken an opportunity at this point. I've told you go ahead and stand up, and, and we're looking back that way for the most part. But if you've ever glanced at the groom in this moment, do you know what's happening to him? His eyes are wide, and he is amazed, right? He's seeing for the first time his wife, his wife-to-be in this wedding gown, walking down the aisle, and in that moment, whatever else went wrong in the wedding or is about to go wrong in the ceremony, it doesn't matter. In that moment, there's this beautiful, beautiful experience, right? And he is just in awe. Scripture will go on to describe Jesus as the groom who views his church like that. And I want to say that kind of in the plural. Yes, it is you. Christ views you with wide eyes and lovingly. He loves you. But I think in the plural, there's something really rich and beautiful about that. That is how Scripture describes his view of the church. Clothed in white, beautiful, cleansed, invited towards him. That is how Jesus views us, the church, and not just us. The global church, of course, is what I'm speaking of. So today we see Jesus at a wedding. We see him gathered for just social purposes, apparently. Uh, but a problem comes up, and Jesus steps in. We ask ourselves today, what, what does the application look like in our lives? Well, the primary thing I want to draw out of this text today is the experience of this groom. A man who should have been preparing for the past year that this would be pulled off smoothly and for whatever reason, lack of resources or lack of planning, it's not happening properly. And yet Jesus steps in to take what would have been a great shame in his life and instead invite great celebration for all of the people present. So as we explore ourselves in this text, I want us to resonate for a moment With the experience of that groom, we have all fallen short. We have all left things undone that we could have done. We've all been in that place where impending shame, you know, is coming. Or or maybe right now, some of us are are sitting in that place of shame in our lives. And and I want to invite us to consider this: letting go of that shame—the shame that either the world or we ourselves has placed on ourselves—knowing that Jesus has invited us. He purifies us. He clothes us in white and we are seen as pure and beautiful in his eyes that we might put away the things that produce shame in our lives and instead move towards joy and celebration that Jesus invites in this story and invites in our lives. That we would move towards a place of joy and celebration. Uh, in relation to who he is and what he's doing in our lives. Remember in this text today, the water to wine, this is just a sign. This points to something far greater than whether or not they got to drink more wine that evening at a wedding. It speaks to who Jesus is. The one who invites us out of shame and into celebration in his presence. So today we're going to take communion. And uh, this is, uh, Jesus sits amongst his closest followers the night before, the night he'll be arrested, shortly before his crucifixion. And there's bread on the table, and there's wine at the table, and he takes and he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body. Take this in remembrance of me. And, and so the church, for 2,000 years, has gotten together on regular basis to take the bread and remember Jesus and his body that would be broken as he would take on the shame of the world as he hung on that cross. And then he takes the, the cup, the, the wine at the table, and he hands it around and, and he says, drink this. This is my blood. This represents my cleansing blood, my sacrifice. Remember me as you drink this. So we gather to take communion and each week we provide communion. For those of you that are newer to this gathering, um, we are uh, a, div- a diverse people uh, from many different denominational backgrounds, and we try to live into that. We try to really celebrate that. And so we take communion in a number of different ways uh, any given week. This week is actually a new experience to this facility. Uh, we opened up in the middle of COVID and communion was very strange and different and so we we've had to do things quite differently um, at the school the, as, a, as a young church plant this used to be a more normal rhythm. Today communion is going to look like and feel a little bit more like you would experience in uh, a high church for instance a Catholic church gathering in that someone will be up front holding the bread and holding the grape juice for you and you'll be invited to walk forward and receive it from an individual. Now in in the Catholic Church, it's really significant that it's a priest. Of course, Scripture describes us as a royal priesthood, right? We are priests. We are agents of God, okay? And so today, you're going to be invited. For those that want to understand, this is a different experience. In, in no way do you have to come forward and receive communion, but know that you are all invited to come and receive communion if you would like to. Uh, it's significant that we'll receive it from someone else. It's a reminder for us that this is both an interaction and an experience with Jesus, his body and his blood, the Spirit that is here with us, but also in an interaction with each other, that we together come to the table, that we receive from each other, not just the people standing up front handing us bread and grape juice, but also those that came early this morning to prepare it, right? That we together come to the table and receive from Christ and receive from each other his body. And his blood. So uh, the rest will play out like this. Uh, just a couple practical things. Um, I'm going to encourage us to walk down the center aisle and then go to either side to receive communion, and then there'll be easy access to walk out and to get back to your seats. Uh, you're invited to take communion this morning, but you are not required to at all. Feel free to just stay seated and comfortable if you would like to. Um, after communion, I'll come back up and, and we'll close out service. So, Sagan. Yeah, yeah. You'll receive it and you can take it and eat it as as you're standing there in front of the people. Uh, One other point, um, they'll likely say to you, uh, his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, something along those lines. It's a relatively traditional way of receiving and remembering Jesus as we take communion together. I'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time and opportunity, Uh, Jesus. Thank you for your life, the signs, and all that we see and witness uh, in John's gospel here today. Uh, As water was turned to wine, and wine such a significant uh, symbol, God, we're thankful to remember um, in the bread, uh, Jesus' body broken, and in the fruit of the vine, in the the grape juice, to remember his blood poured out. We're thankful, God, uh, for this remembrance. In Jesus' name, amen. At your convenience, you're welcome to walk down the center aisle into either side and receive communion this morning. So, we spent time in Scripture today, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, exploring Jesus and the first sign of who He is, the one that lifts shame and invites celebration. We celebrated today in communion. Of course, it's a somber act in that we remember death, but we know after death comes resurrection and hope and new life. So today, I will close with this benediction. May we be a people willing to release the shame that we or that this world has put upon us. And may we be a people who experience joy and celebration in the presence of Jesus, who gives generously. Friends, thanks for joining us today. Have a blessed week.